folks. Welcome back to another episode of your favorite paranormal podcast in the universe. I must be talking about mostly ghostly, of course. Joined with me by, uh, as usual, the great Ray Booten. How you doing over there, Ray? Not bad. How about you? I'm doing well. I know the people out there can't quite see you. But he's rocking that Godzilla tee, and I'm loving it. Doing it big, doing it big. Uh, also on the Mostly Ghostly uh, channel this evening, the great Cynthia Whitney. Hey! Always a pleasure to have you on the show. Always excited to be on the show. And we have a, uh, we have a guest with us, actra extraordinaire, uh, co-host on the... The Boombastic Media Podcast show, Behold a Pale Podcast, that that guy, Alexander the Hawk. Who's that guy? I never heard of him. But I, 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 he sounds pretty sexy, if you ask me. Very sexy. Freshly. Very sexy. Goddamn sexy. Just came back from Texasville, USA. Heck yeah. Remember, Which, everything's bigger in Texas. He came back bigger. For sure. Oh yeah, but there's more That's to love. <laughs> Bigger in the pants. He's a good guy like that. What can I say? Heavy portions down there. So you know, whenever whenever you have a figure like Alexander Hawk on a show, you have to have somebody that matches that caliber of person as the subject and theme. You know, is them the what you're going to discuss and. The only person I could think of would be Alistair Crowley that could remind me of Alexander Hawk, you know what I mean? They're just so much alike in so many different ways. It's just really phenomenal to kind of think about if you have a couple hours to ponder yourself. And a lot of drugs. A lot of droogs. A lot of drugs. We, you both suffer from heroin addiction. Maybe we should start from there. What, <laughs> what, do, you think, what do you think brought Crowley to the needle? Well, I mean, heck, it could be a whole lot of things. I mean, it's obvious, I mean, from a little bit I read that he definitely had an issue with his mother. Um, I mean, his mother lovingly referred to him as the Beast. So, yeah, I I think um, that kind of probably helped urge him towards uh, a more interesting lifestyle. Than uh, just you know, a accountant or anything less crazy as what he became. Yeah, Ray. In, in the spiritual world, when did Alistair Crowley roll into your peripheral? I mean, probably as far back as you know. He's kind of he's been built up as the, the king boogeyman almost. You know, and there's Anton Lavey as well, but I don't think he's quite as credible, so to speak. What's your take? Uh, back in my twenties. I was looking at spiritualism, the resurgence in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And uh, one of the people I looked into was Madame Blavatsky. Another one that came up was Aleister Crowley and his uh, satanic uh, beliefs, or at least what he put out there. Yeah. Yeah, he's an interesting dude. Cindy Lou. Um. Alistair Crowley, when you hear that name, what do you think? What do you think about? Um, he wrote uh, Diary of a Drug Fiend, The Book of Law. It's quite the 
the writer, you know. That's a, yeah, I mean, that. Moonchild. Moonchild, that's when he was, he was big into the, the parliament at that time. The Funkadelic, he was getting heavy into him. A lot to say, good. this guy. I like how, you know, Moon, what was it called? Moonchild? Moonchild. Moonchild is, he sounds like somebody that experimented a lot, not just with drugs and alcohol, but with different genre. Like all those books that you just named sound like they'd be complete different genres of books. You know what I mean? It kind of has that L. Ron Hubbardy thing where it's like a science fiction writer. It's just a dude with a good mind, a good, you know, imagination creates these crazy, uh, you know, sometimes religion, sometimes cults, you know what I mean? Yeah, one of it's called The Book of Law. He says, every man and every woman is a star. He's talking about Alex. Well, of course. That's true. He saw the future and he saw me and I will become the greatest star in the heavens. They They say a lot of that, you know, the satanic stuff. Uh, the Bible and the beliefs and such, you know, some of it gets really dark, of course, with doing terrible things to like innocent folks. And then there's like, I guess the ground level of it, where it's just more of kind of, I guess you would, the best way to sum it up would be like a selfish way of living where it's more like, you know, when you're kind of, you talk, everybody kind of, I guess the Christian way of things would be like, look out for your, your fellow man. If he's down, uh, put out a hand and help them up where I think the satanic belief is more capitalized wherever you can for the better of your life. So if you see your neighbor down, you step on his back to keep him down and get all his stuff type deal. And like, it's not, that's why I think that there's so much tie over with like corporate business and stuff like that, because of how cutthroat business is, especially in that, that big scheme of things, that big realm where people lead trillions and stuff, people getting erased out over. It's mainly just a, you know, money is God type thing. I think that's kind of the satanic thing of it. I think that's that vibe. What do you think? Oh, he was, uh, he was very hedonistic. Everything was for uh, your own pleasure and for yourself. Yeah. Not, not for anybody else. Yeah, it's weird. It's like, um, it's funny. I mean, because so even people that don't, there's so many people that practice that without putting a label to it. You know what I mean? Like they don't, they have no idea that they're kind of living their life in in line with the satanic beliefs. You know what I mean? People that you would go and say, you a satanist and they'd be like, get out of here. You're a weirdo type stuff. Mm-hmm. You know he's I mean? a Satanist, but he's so ambitious. He's you know got, I mean? well, he's got his own religion, books. I think, uh, yeah, dude, he's good. He's an entrepreneur. You know? He is of of evil. Entre- yeah, call him an entrepreneur. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So, so what what's the difference between a religion and a cult? We talked about this before. I think it was something like um, how many people follow follow it, how long it's been around. You know, I mean, well, honestly, if you sit down and think about it, the only difference between what we call recognized religions and a cult, seriously, is just how long it's been around. That's about it, because if you looked at... Now, I mean, you can also argue that cults usually are more 
you know, there's a lot of cults that basically uh, the whole idea is to control a bunch of people, you know, siphon off money or whatever. But then again, if you sit down and look at it, most religions are that way too. So, I mean, it's all about manipulation and uh, and power. But like I said, I mean, the the thing is that you have a whole bunch of edicts that eat either the cults or the religions, you know, say that you're supposed to follow, like the Ten Commandments, using Christianity as the uh, as the basis, because, well, I know the most about that. And and the funny thing is that, you know, you you listen and you talk to a lot of people who, you know, are spouting about how, you know, they're like, great that, you know, this is the best religion, that you should follow this, this is the best way to live. And then you look at them and they themselves don't live by their laws that they're they're saying that you're supposed to live by. So it's kind of like, I mean, it's funny because when, you know, a lot of shit was going down during the pandemics and with the George Floyd and, and all that stuff, that there was a point where some people actually from the satanic church themselves were like, you know, if you feel ostracized, come to us, we'll take care of you, we'll help you. And you'll ha- at the same time, you have a bunch of Christians who like, you know, they should all be punished, thrown in jail or beaten. And it's like, you know, you guys, it's interesting. It's, it's like, you know, every time the Christianity decides to, you know, go towards more of the satanic viewpoint in how they react to other people, the satanics do the opposite. It's like almost like it, it, it's like the perfect yin and yang. It's like if one goes one extreme, the other one counters it. I mean, it's, and of course, I mean, different people I mean, get into these things for pretty much power. So, I mean, that's that's how... I took Alistair Crowley from what I read is that he he felt like he uh, he found a way to try to you know grab some power. Of course, you know it's like the first time Alex talked and I agreed with what he was saying ever. <laughs> oh my god, I'm going to have to write ever. this down as a red letter today. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute, you ne- you didn't agree with something else they said? What was that? No, I don't think so. Right? Ever no. <laughs> You're a madman. So uh, the great Crowley over there that uh, Alexander worships, you know. I only worship you, Matt. I only worship you, dude. Don't even do that. I'm no god. I you are my god. god. I worship the ground you walk on, Mister Matthew Fisher. All right. Well, you got you made it weird now. I think a cult's a cult until the majority recognizes. I mean, isn't it just like a a, a label? To say that we don't yet recognize you yeah. as I mean, a religion. I don't know what the difference would be besides the other side or the majority accepting you. Well, I mean, I mean, honestly, I think it's when, when you have like people using the word, the term cult, it's of course, we, we all know that cult is a negative term used as a negative connotation. Not exactly. Well, for the most part, I mean, if you go up to, to let's say if if I go up and I, I talk to a person on the street and I'm like, hey dude, 
I just found this great religion. Uh, it, it, there's so much truth in this and start talking about it. And then you go to the same person. Elias says, I found this cult that has a lot of truth in it. Could be exact same thing that you talk about. Exact same points, exact same belief system. Yeah. But yeah. if you say religion, someone's going to be more like, huh, I didn't hear this religion. Tell me more about it. i like to hear more about it. But if you go and I, say, I, I, a cult, then people are going to be like, okay, man, okay, uh, stay away from me. I don't want to hear what you say. Yeah. I hear you. I'm lucky enough to have some uh, years on me, you know, and when I was a kid, Wiccans and um, pagans were a cult, and it was yeah. taboo. And now, as the years have passed, I, I mean, it's it's recognized as a religion. You know, go walk the streets of Salem, Mass, and say that pagan and you, you know, in, in Wicca is not a religion. You'll get mauled. It's it, you know, it went from being a cult to to mainstream religion. Yeah, yeah, pretty much is when it's like. Technically accepted by, I guess, the majority when it, is when what it, you know makes it makes it jump from that. If somebody said, if somebody walked up to you and said, "Alex, do you want to be in a movie, or do you want to be in a cult movie?" Which one would you rather be? A well, I mean, I mean, if it's if if it's a movie about a cult, or it's uh, a mo- or, or just a plain movie, it's still the same thing because it's it's. It's like not a, real. A like movie a isn't classic. Hey, hey, I'm like a cult for, classic. Dude, I would love to be in the cult classic. You are. Of course. Absolutely. Okay. All right. So let's dive into this guy right here. Diving on deep. Alistair Crowley, born Edward Alexander Crowley, October twelfth, eighteen seventy five. Day, December 1st, 1947, was an English occultist, uh, ceremonial magician, poet, painter, novelist, and mountaineer. That's very nice. I wasn't, uh, Leslie Nielsen's father was a mountaineer, right? No, no, that was a Mountie. Oh. There's a difference. A mountaineer goes up mountains. A, a Mountie is a Canadian cop on a horse. Oh, shit. All right. Well, he also founded religion, and it's called Thelma. Identifying himself as the prophet entrusted with guiding humanity in the eon of Horus uh, in the early 20th century. Now, the old eon of Horus, you know, in the religion of Thelema, it is believed that the history of humanity can be divided into a series of eons. Uh, Ray, did I say that appropriately? Probably not, right? No, you did. Oh, nice. Uh, Each of us was accompanied by its own forms of magical and religious expression. You know what I mean? Now, the prolific writer, he uh, he published widely over the course of his life. You know, like we were talking before, those books that Cindy uh, read off, they they sounded like they were all different genres. You know, like he did a little comedy, a little drama, a little horror. You know what I mean? Jumping around a little bit which I could appreciate. Now, born to a wealthy family, that's the beginning of the problem right there, in Royal <laughs> Leamington Spa, Warwickshire, okay, 
But they were Christians. They were they were religious people. Yeah, they were. Which goes into that whole thing about is this just all childhood rebellion? Is this where it all starts? And the mother was tough on him, so you got that element too. I almost feel like, you know. Uh, you know, the LeVay is kind of, I felt like kind of the, 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 the clown prince of this whole deal, but it, maybe it's just because he's such a clown that Crowley looks better or looks more wicked in the way, but may, maybe he's got real superficial reasons for all this as well. You know what I mean? Now he was, he, re, he rejected his parents' fundamental Christian, uh, faith to pursue an interest in Western esotericism. You know, he was educated at Trinity College at the University of Cambridge, where he focused his attentions on mountaineering and poetry, like Hawke was talking about. Now, resulting uh, in several publications, some biographers allege that here is where he recruited into British intelligence, the British intelligence agency, um, further suggesting that he remained a spy throughout his life. You know, if you were tagged into something like that, I feel like you might, you know, for a hobby, you you would do something like create a gigantic cult. You know what I mean? Like, why not? Who's going to stop you? In 1898, he joined the esoteric hermetic order of the Golden Dawn, you know, started by Alex Hogg, where he was trained in ceremonial magic by Samuel Liddell McGregor Mathers. You got, you got, you got some four names on that one name. Now, Ray, back in the day, uh, the more names you had, the more more money you have or power, did that mean anything? Or what was this? Why do people have like 20 names in their name back in the day? Uh, they tended to, um, it was famous people in your line. You might have your father, your name, and then your father's name and your grandfather's name. Everything was about family and the name. Mm. Uh, the other uh, magician that uh, taught him was a dude named Alan Bennett, who only had two word, two names. So he was poor. He was poor. Yeah. <laughs> now he went mountaineering in Mexico with Oscar Eckenstein uh, before studying Hindu and the Buddhist practices in India. You know, I think a lot of these cult folks they really dive into all the different religions and they kind of pick, pick, you know, cherry pick certain things they think work, you know what I mean, to, when they create their own thing. In 1904, he married Rose Edith Kelly, you know what I mean, very nice girl, and they honeymooned in Cairo, Egypt, where Crowley claimed to have been contacted by a supernatural entity named Iwas, A-I-W-A-S-S, who provided him with the Book of the Law, a sacred text that served as a basis for Thelema, Announcing the start of the Eon Horus of Horus, the book declared uh, that its followers should do what thou wilt and uh, seek to align themselves with their true will through the practice of magic. So, yeah, there's that. That do as thou wilt, you know, that's been going, that's been around forever, for sure. I've heard that. In I think many it's years. amazing that this, this guy's, you know, there's, we get our religions, we're taught usually from our parents or our immediate, yeah. you know, circle and stuff. But it, it's amazing to me that this guy goes out and he studies all of them and picks the most evil one. Like, we, I mean, to pick the evil one thinking and not knowing that the other ones exist. But this guy, like, learns about all of them. And mm. it just came down to picking good and evil. And he picked evil. 
Yeah, everybody's got to have a side, you know what I mean? Now, he this was probably around the time he was experimenting with uh, droogs pretty heavily. Um, they say the droogs were a little more heavier than they are nowadays in certain situations with hallucinogenic stuff like that. Now, being contacted by a supernatural entity, uh, this this Awas character, um, what's your guys' take on something like that? You think that, that that's alien, that's supernatural, that's in a, something in a crazy person's head, that's something because of a drug? What do you guys think of that? I want to hear from everybody on all around the table on this one. We'll start uh, to go first. Oh, Ray. Well, that's fairly common. Uh, people getting messages from, uh, they may call them supernatural or higher entities, ascended masters, depending upon where you go in the world. Yeah. The idea of, uh, getting that information uh, in dreams and in, in visions, uh, that is that is very, very common. You can go right into the American West. We had Native Americans and you have rituals and the medicine man or the shaman would receive messages from the other side. Um, you study old uh, records and you, find, you talk about the, they talk about getting the messages from the star people. Um, even if you go to Egypt, there's a whole school around what they call the Book of Thoth, which is the Book of Secrets. Mm. So getting those messages from the other side, from the, su- the supernatural entities, ascended masters, whatever name may- you may want to use, is common in a lot of belief systems, or a lot of cultures, actually. It doesn't even have to be a set belief system. It's just in the cultures that there is a something out there that contacts us and gives us information and guides us, or tries to at least. Cynthia, what do you think? He says happiness lies within oneself, and the way to dig it out is cocaine. It's kind of like my hero. I'm changing my whole life to his his teachings now after hearing some. Yeah. Yes. I'll, I'll say we get a scar face worth of cocaine right about. Oh, there it is. I love it. And that was the purest of cocaine back then. Oh, yeah. That wasn't stepped on cocaine. You're a good shit. Whistle and dance cocaine. He says also that. We must conquer life by living it uh, to the full and that we can go meet death with a certain prestige by doing that. So, I mean, really, we were talking about earlier about him being so ambitious and an entrepreneur and stuff. It's like that's his way to his heaven. Mm. You know, they're like dark artists that like they know that if they go the dark route, like he was obviously an intelligent you know, could could process his words appropriately and get out what he wanted to do. Like, he was a smart dude. You know, I wonder if, like, they go, you know, if I just lean into this darkness, like a Manson, like a Marilyn Manson, not a Charlie Manson, maybe even Charlie. But then it's like, if I just lean into this darkness a little more, I think it would benefit me. You know what I mean? Like, the show, like show, show busy type vibe. Alex, what do you think about all this? The, the drugs, have you ever gotten yourself that fucked up on drugs that you were seeing people, and they were telling you. No, scared. no, no. That requires money. I don't have. Um, yeah, I mean, if if I actually got paid pretty uh, better, I, I might be. But no, now that requires too much money for me. Um, well, I mean, the thing is, the the whole 
idea and feeling I get about this guy is that I wouldn't be surprised if drugs uh, is is part of you know this thing about you know him being contacted by this supernatural entity. But honestly, it, I don't think that it was even that. The impression I get, okay, here you have this guy going, and he's checking all these different religions all around the world, okay? And the thing is, he's looking, the impression I get, he's looking for a way to, um, you know, push his beliefs, push his, what he thinks is the way things should be. Now, the best way to do that, uh, especially if you're going with the religious route, is you, you, you study all these different religions, you take out, you cherry pick out the, the best or the things that you can use to help manipulate people. And a lot of times you look at these uh, religions and there are talks about being, you know, like seeing God, talking to God, talking to a, a supernatural or uh, an uh, otherworldly being. And I wouldn't put it past him to just make it up. Make, because it's obviously this guy has an agenda, okay? And this guy is finding a way to uh, push his agenda on other people. And the best way to push your agenda on other people is if you convince them that this is a, um, like a religious or a faith kind of belief system. Right. Uh, and that's what a lot of other people have done throughout the centuries, all of the different religions have done this before. So the way I see it is he probably looked at it like, I'll, I'll, I'll find this. Uh, I don't know whether he just made this up or whether he actually found this name in a book somewhere. And he's like, I was contacted by this supernatural entity. And this, this one is showing me the way, showing me the best way to live my life. And I want to share it with you. And, I mean, honestly, I think he's more of a, you know, con artist businessman. And uh, he used what he had learned from the other religions that helped convince people to follow those religions. And he tried to bring it into his own personal religion. It would all, you know, go from what you would believe. You know, he's almost like... Uh... If you were to get down with those beliefs, he's probably like the Billy Graham of his. Or like, uh, who's the other dude? Who was the guy that was blowing away COVID, that the televangelist, that famous dude? I Robert, know who you're talking about. Billy Graham? That skinny little guy, yeah. Is it Billy Graham? Is that his name? It might oh, be Kenneth Billy. Copeland. I don't know about Graham. Yeah, maybe. Kenneth Copeland. I think it was Kenneth yeah. Copeland. I think. Yeah, I think it's uh, yeah. And he was I like, think COVID it's... be gone. And he was like, I'm going to yell at COVID, and COVID's going to disappear. Yeah, it's just like a yin and a yang to that type deal. He's like the because anybody could go because anybody could just say that either side of the fence is just yeah. But this, I think this guy's the real deal. You know, he yeah. lived. I, what we have to do is we have to grab an eight ball and head over to the Bullskin House in Scotland. And, and, and here's a little fun fact for you. He lives next to, or he lived, well, he lives or he yeah. dies because he haunts this place um, right next to Loch Ness. Oh, like, really? What's the chances that the Satan guy lives next to the Loch Ness monster? Mm, same neighborhood on the same block. 
this maybe a serpent. Well, well, they, they they did say that Alistair had a monster. You know, he was a beast. Had, 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 he was a beast. <laughs> he was a monster in the shack. We all know that, Mr. Alistair. Oh, Alistair Crowley just had to let the Loch Ness monster out. And, they, and well, the rest is history. They said, they said Led Zeppelin guitar player Jimmy Page actually lived there with him. I believe they wrote, recorded <laughs> a few albums in that house because uh, he has that, that tie-in. I know, yeah, Led Zeppelin did with Page and over that. Um, yeah, it's very interesting stuff. Um, yeah, I'm sure it's probably going to be haunted. Maybe, you know, the, the Loch Ness was a gift from Satanus or something for all the bad deeds he did for him. But, you know, after the unsuccessful 1905 Kanjin-Junga expedition, all right, uh, which was a Himalayan mountain terran expedition aimed to climb the summit of the Kanjin-Junga, which would ultimately only be achieved in 1955. Now, during this and a visit to India and China, Crowley returned to Britain, where he attracted attention as a, a prolific author of poetry, novels, and occult literature, which I assume would be, you know, I guess not really science fiction, but it would be a whole different bracket. I was going to compare him to uh, L. Ron Hubbard again. But in 1907, he and George Cecil Jones... Uh, who was a British chemist, occultist, and one-time member of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn and co-founder of the Magical Order, AA, according to author and occultist Alistair Crowley. Now, him and George Cecil Jones, they co-founded an esoteric order, the AAA, which is very weird. It's a very, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's a, you'd have to take it, it's, it, two waves and symbols around it. It's a magical organization described in 1907 by Crowley. Uh, its members are dedicated to the advancement of humanity by perfection of the individual on every plane through a graded series of universal initiations. Word up, you know what I mean? Uh, now, through which they, they propagated Thelema. After spending time in Algeria in 1912, he was initiated into another esoteric order, the German-based Ordo Templi Orientis, or the OTO, rising to become the leader of its British branch, which he uh, reformulated in accordance with his Thelemite beliefs. Through the OTO, uh, Thelemite groups were established in Britain, Austria, and North America. Crowley spent the First World War in the United States, where he took up painting and campaigning for Germ the German war effort against Britain, later revealing that he had infiltrated the pro-German movement to assist the British intelligence services. In 1920, he established the Abbey of Thelema, a small house which was used for a temple and spiritual center for the religion. Um, very small buildings, surprisingly. A religious commune in uh, Kefalu, Sicily, where he lived with various followers. Uh, his libertine lifestyle led to uh, denunciation in the British press, and the Italian government evicted him in 1924. He divided the following two decades between France, Germany, and England, and continued to promote Thelema until his death. Uh, you know, libertine out there is mainly an Alex Hawk. You know, it's a person <laughs> devoid of most moral principles, a sense of responsibility, or sexual restraint, which are, you know, seen as unnecessary 
or undesirable, especially someone who ignores or even spurns accepted morals, forms of uh, behavior. Now, I remember Johnny Depp, who was in the limelight recently, he portrayed Alexander Hawk in a movie called The Libertine Ones. <laughs> All right. Um, so, yeah, he was just doing it. He was he was living wild, having fun, doing drugs, fornicating all over the place. Um, I believe, you know, Crowley gained widespread notoriety during his lifetime being a very heavy uh, recreational drug abuser like Buddy Botafuco, bisexual, which by, back in the day was pretty much calling someone the devil himself, I'm sure. Uh, in the 70s, it was calling somebody the devil himself. And an individualist, uh, maybe even the 90s, you know, a social critic, you know what I mean? An individualist, social critic, you know, um, you know, social issues, contemporary society in particular with respect, perceived injustices and power. You know, so th- that was the time when just speaking anything outside of the box was big trouble. They didn't appreciate that. He remained a highly influential figure over Western uh, esotericism and the counterculture of the 1960s and continues to be considered a prophet uh, in Thelema. And uh, he is sub- subject to various biographies and academic studies. You know what I mean? As you all know out there. I wanted dive into that uh, Thelema thing a little bit real quick before we dive off. You know, in February 1904, Crowley and Rose arrived in Cairo claiming to be, to, a, to be a prince and a princess. They rented an apartment in which Crowley set up a temple room and began invoking ancient Egyptian deities. So Bootman, he was, he, they, they, open, they were opening up a portal. Think that's where some of this power might have come from? For sure, huh? Uh, I think so. I think that uh, he was calling on things he may not, if he was doing it to recruit people uh, for his status, he may not have been uh, truly aware of what he was calling in or what was going on and what might get a hold of him. And he, he so, couldn't have been the first of his kind. There had to have been many, many more. He just was more out for fame and the wealth The wealth helped him get there. You know, the, the greed and the... The ego is part of that kind of bad nature, right? Yeah, he was hoping to get some. <laughs> he got plenty, man. I think I think he was hoping to get a seat in like his his hell. In 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 what he's saying, you know, he said, "I can imagine myself on my deathbed, spent utterly with lust to touch the next world, like a boy asking uh, for his first kiss from a woman." I, I really feel like he thought that. Um, you know, serving this evil entity that he's making deals with. I think there was almost a promise that he has this throne to sit on when he does pass. That was have, that was that was that was some poetic shit right there. That was deep. He's a word. Yeah. Uh, if it, if it's evil, it's going to promise you a throne, and then what you're going to find out is uh, when you're on the other side, what you were uh, playing with now has their foot on your neck, and you ain't got no throne. That's they were the- using. They were using you to get more people to follow that evil. Yeah. That we talked about, talked about that on the show before, you know, growing up. Um, there's like that, like, the, I went to a sleepover and people were doing pentagrams on their body and stuff, um, fucking around, not, not realizing, like kid shit, not realizing the seriousness. And I didn't do it because he, you know, I kind of was raised in a church. So, like, I didn't want nothing to do with that. But, like, uh, 
that fits into what we were talking about somehow, but I brain farted. All, all, um, I, all I have to say is, uh, Matt, what kind of sleep orders were you, uh, were you really? hanging out? Because, I mean, when I went to a sleepover, we only had to worry about, you know, double dog dares and pillow fights. Yeah. I mean, we, yeah, we weren't bloody Mary to, in the mirror. Yeah, we, we, we weren't putting any uh, pentagrams on us Carving and saying, come into me, thy Satan. That's some serious shit. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, it was a we. It was definitely. That's why I remember it vividly to this day because it was so weird. It was such a weird deal. It was a. It was like a handful of kids. We were at some kid dab. It was a birthday sleepover or something. I don't know who came up with it, but for whatever reason, they thought it would be like a fun or cool idea to like to do that. Like a rock and roll, I think it was like the rock and roll thing, you know, which is very weird because a lot of that rock and roll stuff, if you dive deep into it, a lot of that rock and stuff is like they're almost they're taking a more positive. It's demons and devils on the artwork, but like they would claim that they're trying to be the good guys, telling you about the bad. Like that's their whole gimmick. So then, kids see that shit and they go put it on. It's the same thing with like drinking and drug use with rock and roll i remember hearing an interview i think it was with ozzy or was one of those big people back in the day and they'd go yeah you know it's a crazy thing back in the day would do an album would, would get a magazine cover and would ha- they'd give us a bottle of jack daniels and would take a picture with the bottle of jack daniels and you know maybe would take a swig or whatever but it you know it, or like an empty bottle and it would look like they were partying and then kids go out there and they become you know, raging alcoholics because now you have a 16-year-old kid thinking it's normal to drink a whole bottle of Jack Daniels, you know what I mean, and working his way to getting to that point when the actual rock musicians themselves don't even live. Well, some of them do, but the majority of them don't go that hard. You die when you go that hard, you know what I mean? That's kind of the evils of rock and roll, I feel. Whenever people say the devil's in rock and roll, that's my take on it. And like, in, in I consider new age hip-hop rock and roll, too, the element, the spirit of it where you see them all getting hooked on lean and all these weird drugs that they're fucking, they're finding them dead in their cars and stuff like that, or they're dying walking through airports, you know what I mean? Cause they're on all this hardcore shit. Um, but I think they're part of that generation of, you know, the idolizing those, those people that would glamorize, you know, heroin being cool and, you know, drinking Jack Daniels for, with breakfast, you know what I mean? And I'm sure we've all kind of met people in our walk that are, they kind of think it's cool to do that really extreme vibe thing. You know what I mean? It's weird. I know when I first met Ray, um, <laughs> very, very, I can't even talk. There are legal reasons I can't talk about it. <laughs> well, I'll tell you something. Back in uh, college, we had something we call the Breakfast of Champions. Yeah. That was a beer, a beer and cold pizza. <laughs> Left over from the night before, you grab the beer, the pizza, down them both, and go to class. See that—that's like that's so PG compared to what I feel like kids are doing now. I think they're waking up and they're like blowing lines of cocaine, and then like something to like get them not to be so hyper. And then they're like taking something else, and they have like a whole drug list of stuff in their body going in different directions. Like that's what kind of killed Belushi and 
in, in Chris Farley is the drugs that they were mixing were like two that they said one of them was bringing you incredibly down and the other one was trying to bring you incredibly up and fucking just like tore them in two pieces and they died. Yeah, it's a weird, that's a whole different, that's a whole different episode right there. You know, now other than invoking these ancient Egyptian deities, which we've agreed definitely bring some trouble to the party. Now he was studying Islamic mysticism and Arabic, you know what I mean? According to Crowley's later account, Rose regularly became delirious uh, and informed him they are waiting, they are waiting for you. And on, that's kind of dark, man. Anybody, I know I'd be shook if anybody came to me, especially if I, even if I wasn't doing anything, diving into these, these dark things. But I always think it's, oh, that's what I was going for with the satanic thing before. It's like, the people that think that the that like the devil's like if you're cool with the devil, the devil will be cool back with you type deal. I always thought that was super weird. You know, they're like, well, I can be evil and I can do this and that here. And when I go to hell, me and the devil are going to have cookouts together. We're going to be good friends. Everything's going to be fantastic. And it's like, well, he's a great liar and a tricker. So wouldn't you? Do? And he's all about torturing and like causing that ruckus and torment it's like why do you think he would be cool with you wouldn't it be better for him to let you think that and then betray you when you get there like that's kind of the definition of what what i always know the devil to be you know yeah i mean the thing that i always it's the same thing in in real world where you have someone who lies cheats and 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 all that but for some reason people still believe even if he's proven to be a liar cheater and that he's done all these horrendous things, you still have people who are, like, still kowtowing to him and kissing his ass, and then you got, it's kind of like a, I don't know, some kind of mentality I think that we as, as as a species have where we think that if we kind of subs, uh, become subservient to someone that we consider to be uh tougher, meaner, the alpha male and all that, some some reason, something in our, our, our makeup makes us think that if we're that way to the this el- person we consider an alpha, that they'll take care of us if we're sh- so subservient to them. Yeah. But then again, everything they do shows that they don't give a crap about you and they don't give a crap about you know, bringing you with them, but yet people still seem to, you know, just kowtow and, and, and bend the knee to these people. I mean, it's kind of the same thing with the uh, Aleister Crowley getting all the people worked up because he's showing all this, you know, kind of alpha machismo and people are, you know, like, oh my God, this guy is so much bigger than me and, and I'm I'm going to, you know, listen to him and follow him and he'll take care of me, even though it's obvious that his entire, you know, belief system is all about myself, not anyone else. So, I mean, I always find that interesting about like the social dynamic. Yeah. Uh, I mean, whether you believe in the devil or not, I mean, whether you call it the devil or energy or whatever, I mean, there's definitely the good and bad out there for sure. For anybody that's getting wrapped up with the, we talk about the devil, fucking, you know, cartoonish characters to people. You know what I mean? 
there's definitely some darkness out there for sure. Yeah. Now, well, always remember, uh, Scooby-Doo did teach us one thing. Mon- uh, people are monsters, okay? I mean, there's no... It's, it's, we ourselves create our own monsters. I mean, that's... Scooby-Doo, where are you? Where are you? But yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's sad, but for the most part, that we ourselves are our worst enemies. You just changed my whole outlook on humanity with that hug. I, I gotta go. This is bleak now. This is way too bleak. Alright, on March 18th, she explained they were uh, the god Horus. They made contact with Horace. They were talking about him, leading, you know, praising him. Before, now he's actually made contact. And on March 20th, proclaimed that the equinox of gods has come. Ray, what is an equinox? I own the movie, but I don't know what it actually is. Uh... Well, it depends upon if you're talking about summer or winter, but it can be the longest where day and night are equal. The longest day. My okay. birthday. Your birthday? Yeah, June 21st, longest day. We had you on the show for your birthday. Yeah, I was a guest, yeah. Another, on my birthday. Another happy birthday to you. But if you, if, if you look at it in uh, Crowley's words, when he's talking about the equinox, he says he and him being... Uh, hedonist and Satanist, basically, what he's saying about God is that you've had your greatest time, and now it's going to shorten. Yeah. Mm. Uh, She led him to a nearby museum, where she showed him a 7th century BCE mortuary stell. Now, stell's kind of like a stone or wooden slab, generally taller than it is wide, erected in the ancient world as a monument. Uh, known as the Steel of Ankh F.N. Khonsu, Crowley thought it uh, was important that the exhibit's number was at 666, the number of the beast in Christian belief, and in later years termed the artifact the Stell of Revealing. Hmm. Uh, that triple six, that's big, that's heaviness, you know. According to Crowley's later statements on April 8th, he heard the disembodied voice claiming to be that of Awas, his friend from before, the messenger of Horus, or Hor Par Krat. Uh, Crowley said that he wrote down everything the voice told him over the course of the next three days, entitled it Labor El Valages, or the Book of Law. Now, the book proclaimed that humanity was entering a new eon, uh, and that Crowley, now real quickly an eon frame, but the religion of Thelma believed the history of humanity can be divided into a series of eons, each of which was accompanied by its own form of magical and religious expression. Uh, the first of it was Isis. There's a lot of eons there. And that Crowley would serve as its prophets, you know what I mean? All the prophets talk to these to, to the enlightened uh, type ghost folks. It stated that the supreme morale of law was to be introduced in this eon. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. I've heard that many a times, so and that's a that's a heavy saying. Alex, you get that tattooed across your back, don't you? <laughs> no, across my front. 
Oh, okay, good man. And that people should learn to live in tune with their will. This book and the philosophy that uh, espoused became uh, the cornerstone of Crowley's religion. Crowley said that at the time he had been unsure what to do with the book of the law, often resenting it. He said that he ignored the instructions which the text commanded him to perform, which included taking the stale of revealing from the museum, fortifying his own island, and translating the book into all the world's languages. According to his account, he instead sent typescripts of the work to several occultists he knew, putting the manuscript away and ignoring it. You know, wouldn't you think uh, it would, if they, if it tells you to do something that you should probably do it, you know what I mean? Not to be funny, but like if you're dealing with an entity like that and it's tell you're, 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 I would feel like, like the fact that he didn't do what he was told, I almost feel like I'd call a little BS on that because if you were brave, if you were going through all this hassle to, t- to touch down and communicate with something and then actually reach something and it'd be this all powerful thing that you claim it to be. And it tells you to do something. You would assume that you would, well, he was a heavy drug addict, I guess, but you would assume that you would follow through and do what they want you to do. What do you think? He says, if power asks why, then power is weakness. That's right out of the book of law. That's fucking heavy. This is a heavy dude, man. So right there, I get, yeah, there it is, right there. It's kind of like a a get-out-of-jail-free card type deal, you know what I mean? So nothing can be really questioned. (laughs) It is. Um, Hawk, you want to talk a little bit about his youth? His early life? Sure. Let's delve into the... The uh, the uh, uh, Damien uh, uh, 1.0. Um, let's see. Okay, in his youth, and we are going to be tackling 1875 to 1894. Now, Crowley was born uh, Edward Alexander Crowley at uh, 30 Clarendon Square in Royal Leamington, um, uh, Warwickshire. On the 12th of October, 1875, his uh, father, Edward Crowley, uh, who lived 1829 to 1887, was trained as an engineer, but his share in a lucrative family brewing business, Crowley Elton Ailes, had allowed him to retire before his son was born. His mother, Emily Bertha Bishop, who lived 1848 to 1917, came from a Devonshire-Somerset family and had a strained relationship with her son. She described him as the Beast, a name that he he reveled in. Uh, the couple had been married at London's Kensington Register Office in November 1874 and were evangelical Christians. Well, it's obviously uh, that uh, he and his mother were not in the best relationships. Uh, And I cannot think of any mother who has a lovingly relationship with a kid that she refers to as the beast. Mm. Um, Unless it's like, oh, come here, little beastie. Come here, beast. Oh, you cute little beast. I love you, beast. Well, I have a feeling that that's not the relationship that those two had. Just, just guessing here. Um, Crowley's father uh, had been born uh, a Quaker, 
uh, that's a, uh, a religion, not Quaker Oats, uh, but had uh, converted to the Exclusive Brethren, a fraction of Christian fundamentalist group known as Plymouth Brethren. Emily likewise converted upon marriage, like most women uh, did. They followed their husband's religious beliefs in marriage. Um, Crowley's father was particularly devout, spending his time as a traveling preacher for the sect and reading a chapter from the Bible to his wife and son after breakfast every day. I mean, I can see getting kind of a resentment towards that a, a religion if you are kind of force-fed it every day after breakfast with your ham and eggs. Um, following the death of their baby daughter in 1880, in 1881, the Crowleys moved to Red Hill, Surrey. At the age of eight, Crowley was sent to H.T. Heberson's Evangel- Evangelical Christian Boarding School in Hastings, and then to Eber Preparatory School in Cambridge, run by the Reverend Henry Darcy Chatney, whom Crowley considered a sadist. Hmm. Uh, kind of w- w- makes you want to wonder why, I mean, with with uh, the type of person that Alistair ended up becoming, you kind of wonder what kind of sadist rituals that this uh, Reverend Henry D. Darcy Chatney inflicted upon him at uh, boarding school. He's you can only imagine. He's no Reverend Bob Levy, that's for sure. He made yeah. someone drink so much blood cat, blood, cat blood, blood cat, cat blood some- that they died. What? Who did? Crowley? Yeah. Or at that, at that school? No, he said, you know, in 1923, he was, he had gone to Sicily to start his religion. Yeah. And there was an Englishman there with him and he mysteriously died. And what they're saying is that he drank so much cat blood, it killed him. That's horrifying. I understand. To the point they kicked him out of Sicily. Like Italy was like, get the fuck out. Yeah, I remember that he was troubled, dude. Dang. Well, hold off on the catnip. Um, How much blood, cat blood do you have to drink? That's a lot. Yeah, it, it, that's a lot, right? I, 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 I'm going to say that uh, it's at least three uh, cats worth. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how you. I don't even know how you keep that down, knowing what you're drinking, and you would eventually start to get bloated in the stomach from it. From just like, oh, like you drink a whole bunch of water, you're going to start to get that feeling. You know, it's just yeah. sick. It tastes like <laughs> shit, dude. I bet it tastes like it's copper water. Horrifying. Um, cats are filthy. You know what I mean. Yeah. Who knows where they? I, I'm sure they weren't the best. I, cats. I, I think. I think the guy misunderstood when he said, "Go get some pussy." Oh <laughs> my god, you're you're out of control. Is that how his hey, dad died? Of, is I, that how I'm, his dad died of tongue cancer from? You know. <laughs> hey, um, I'm sorry. I I had I had to had to throw in that joke. All right. It, it was it was begging. It was begging for it. Yeah. Uh, and and to, now in let's see, it says in March 1887, when Crowley mm. was only cute little age of 11, his father died of tongue cancer, as Matt said. Uh, Crowley described this as a turning point in his life, and he always maintained an admiration for his father, describing him as my hero and my best friend, yeah. inheriting a third of his father's wealth. I mean, come on. 
he getting a third of his wealth, of course he's going to be your best friend. Yeah, yeah. He began misbehaving in school and was harshly punished by Chutney. Uh, uh, by Chutney. Ooh, that's probably where the sadist in him came out. If he was uh, happy, probably, if he was happy with getting a third, he wasn't an official rich kid because a rich kid would want all of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, well, it depends how much money it was. I mean, heck. Um, I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, heck. If if a third of his, his riches was like a few billion dollars, even a uh, a greedy rich kid could be like, yeah, I think I can I can live on that. Yeah, no, I hear you. Yeah. Right. Um, Sorry, but evil pay. He died penniless. Nada. Zip zero. That just means he's a terrible evil person because evil people always die rich. He, they usually yeah, do. Bad. He drank and drooged and st- it's expensive to start your own religion and call, you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Not if you do it right. I mean heck, um uh, what's his name, the guy with the uh the um uh pump uh the uh the uh punch. Um oh, Jim you know, Jones. Jim Jones. I mean heck. You know, if you're smart, you have everyone drink drink uh, the uh, the uh, Kool Aid, and then you collect on on all the uh, what's left. If you're smart about it, you are an animal. You look at you with that blueprint to cult right there. You, you've got you got life insurance policies on everybody that you have them drink Kool Aid, baby. Well, yeah, I mean that's 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 uh, the way for you're a happy giving, cult. You're giving too many people ideas out there, hot. I'm not giving anyone any ideas. I'm just saying that everything everyone knows. No, I know. I, I don't think anything I'm saying is is peeling back the curtain. Um, let's see. I wonder if he bought his. He could have bought his own books, like Ron Hubbard. I heard there was a big deal with that, where you know, because he's he's like one of the highest selling authors. But from what I was told, from what I heard on the grapevine, the so you know they they. They they uh they buy like they just buy a bunch of like a bunch of his books so they so it sells you know so it's always selling and then they give them out for free type deal. I've heard act musical acts do that with their CDs and all types of stuff. But yeah, sorry to cut you off, Hawkman. Go back for it. Uh, Go back. So um, let's see. Oh yeah, Crowley's uh, family removed him from school when he developed albinuria. Where it's some kind of disease, I guess. Some kind. Of, you got to be a little more sympathetic for that, dude. It's a, it's a pathological condition wherein the protein uh, albumin is abnormality present in the urine. Uh, so you can't just give our. You got to respect people got issues with their pee, man. Well, yeah, <laughs> I, yeah, oh, but man. I have no respect for him. So yeah. <laughs> All right. Next up, you're right. You got it. Uh, uh, he then attended um, Malvern College and Tonbridge School, both of which he despised and left after a few terms. He became increasingly skeptical regarding Christianity, pointing out inconsistencies in the Bible to his religious teachers. Uh, that I, I, can, I can say that teachers do not like that, especially religious teachers, when you point out how much... Uh, <laughs> Uh, things contradict each other in their good book. They yeah. really don't like that. And went against the Christian morality of his upbringing by smoking, masturbating, mm. and having sex with prostitutes. 
I take it back. I actually might like this guy. From uh, whom he contracted gonorrhea. Ooh, the gift that keeps on giving. Uh, sent to live with a brethren tutor in Eastbourne. He undertook chemistry courses at Eastbourne College. Uh, probably developed interest in chess, poetry, and mountain climbing. Probably because he likes what the mountains look like. And in 1894, climbed Beachy Head before visiting the Alps and joining the Scottish Mountaining, uh, Mountaineering Club. The following year, he returned to the Bernese Alps, climbing the Eiger, Trift, Jungfro, Monk, and Wetterhorn. So well, he good ride, yeah. I've been there myself. Yeah, it, it seems that he just loves going up those peaks and getting to the top. Peaks and valleys, highs and lows. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, now, what do you think about what he was so? His father was his hero. Uh, father dies of tongue cancer. Uh, father was probably they were very religious. Father was probably speaking a lot of religious stuff. What's your? You think that the hatred? You know, of course, I think you can say right here the hatred for he got angry with a god or a positive light for taking his father away. Um, and you, you know, the, the tongue cancer could be a little insult to injury because it's like if he was going around preaching all the time the word of God, so to speak, and he got cancer of the mouth. It's kind of like a weird deal, you know. What's your take on? Uh, the impact of the father dying in, in his life. Obviously a hero and the mother you didn't like, you know what I mean? So what you got, what do you guys think? I kind of, uh, oh, go ahead, Ray. I was going to say, I agree with you. I think that part of uh, why he developed his hate for the established religion was that uh, he idolized his father and then his father dies that way. He can't reconcile with that, so he starts blaming God, and he starts tearing religion apart. Yeah. What do you think, Cindy? I think at some point, <clears throat> we all are angry with our parents, and but, you know, you, you, there's good and there's evil, and you don't, you don't pick evil, and, you know, I just, I don't understand, yeah, you just don't pick evil. If, sure. That whole angry your parents thing. What do you think that is? You think because life's just kind of hard in general, and when that when you're going through something tough or whatever, you kind of think of well, you could always fall back on the well. You know, I didn't sign up for life. My parents, you know, gave me life. You think that, that might be why people kind of take it out of their parents? That outlook? I think I took it out on my mom because I was just like her and in denial about it. You know, just like, I'm not going to be. You know, so too much just in denial of over who you really are. Yeah. That's a good point, yeah. What do you guys think? Well, I mean, I mean, the thing is that I, I agree with uh, what Ray said and uh, the, about about the fact that, you know, he, he idolized his father and his father died. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's probably the beginning of it. I also think that... After, you know, since his father was so, in, in, you know, just keep on pushing the word of God and Christianity and all that. And it also showed that, you know, when he was in college, he started, you know, fighting with his teachers over the book about. And the thing is, it didn't go into the specifics of, 
Because when when you re- reading the Bible, you can, uh, there's there's interpretations, and you don't know exactly how his father interpreted, and how the establishment interprets it. Because there's always differences, no matter where you go, on how one interprets the Bible. And the thing is, it could be the fact that his father taught him of um, uh, the way I read it, a very fundamental. You know, like, here's the Ten Commandments. These are what you're supposed to uh, do and, and not, and not uh, you know, like, uh, covet your neighbor's wife, you know, kill people. You know, these are the basic things that you're supposed to not do. And the, and the fact is that what probably happened is that his father dies, and then, you know, he's, work, uh, he's going to these, um, uh, schools where you have people that are supposed to be the authority on the Bible, and he probably saw that they're not living to the standard that his father was pushing on him. And then he kind of says, well, if these people are supposed to be the authority, then why am I forcing myself to follow these rules and all that when they don't? And it's kind of like, you know, when the teenager grows up and realizes that, you know, the adults that are teaching him what to do are saying, do what I say, but not as I do. And, and then they, when, when, when I find when kids see that, okay, especially when uh, it's from people that they respect, their reaction is, well, screw you. Okay. If you were going to say, do not, Covered your neighbor neighbor's wife, but at the same time you're screwing your neighbor's wife. Okay, then I'm like, you know what? I want that. I want to have fun like you. Why? Why is it I'm listening to you following these rules while you're doing whatever you want anyway? And you just go into confession, and say, "I'm sorry, God, I screwed my neighbor's wife." I'll say a hail mary, and then I'll screw her after I'm done. Yeah, I mean that's that's what I think probably was what he was dealing with after his father's dead is that, you know, the guy who was kind of his moral pillar dies, and then he finds that the only other people that are spouting what he's, his father spouted aren't, aren't living by what they preach. Yeah. And then, of course, his reaction is to go the other extreme, which is unfortunately what a lot of young people do when they find themselves at a crossroad where you know, they're being taught all their life this, and then they realize that those who are pushing that belief aren't living it. And then, of course, the the reaction that they usually have is they go the other extreme, like what he seemed to have done. Yeah. Well, he uh, he had his first significant mystical experience while on holiday in Stockholm in December 1896. Several biographers, including Lawrence Sutton, Richard Kaczynski, and Tobias Churton, believe that he was the result of Crowley's first same-sex sexual experience, which enabled him to recognize his bisexuality. Uh, At Cambridge, uh, Crowley maintained a vigorous sex life with women, largely with female prostitutes, from one he caught syphilis, uh, but he eventually took part in same-sex activities, despite their illegality. I know I, uh, there was, I think the first time he ever had sex was with like, he had sex with the maid in his, in his, uh, his manor. 
on his mother's bed and the mother caught him. And I guess that the, the maid was so like destroyed her reputation that she became a prostitute. And, um, he claimed later that she was the first victim of Jack the Ripper. And then he knew Jack the Ripper, but I don't quite know if I buy that one. I, I don't know if I'd buy that for a dollar. You know he I mean? unleashed the beast. Ah, uh, for sure. You know yeah. what I mean? Uh, definitely some of that stuff. Yeah. Now, he, his sex life was crazy with all different partners of all kind. He had diseases flying all over the place. Uh, you know, a whole different time. Now, in October 1897, Crowley met Herbert Charles Pallott, president of the Cambridge University Footlights Dramatic Club, uh, and the two entered into a relationship. They broke apart because Pallett did not share Crowley's increasing interest in the Western esotericism, a breakup that Crowley would regret for many years. Broke his heart, first real heartbreak. Now, in 1897, Crowley traveled to St. Petersburg in Russia, later saying that he was trying to learn Russian as he was considering a future diplomatic career there. In October, uh, a, a brief illness triggered consideration for mortality and the futility of all human endeavor. And Crowley abandoned all thoughts of a diplomatic career in favor of pursuing an interest in the occult. So, yeah, I guess uh, he got sick. He had a near-death experience, and that kind of flipped him a little bit. In March 1898, he obtained A.E. Wade's The Book of Black Magic and of Pax, and then Carl von Eckenhausen's The Cloud Upon the Sanctuary, uh, furthering his occult interest. That same year, Crowley privately published 100 copies of his poem, Akeldama, a place to bury strangers in, uh, but it was not a particular success. It was uh, issued by Leonard Smithers that same year. Crowley published a string of other poems, including White Stains, which if that's what I think it's about, that's funny to even have something that long ago be called that. Uh, a A decadent collection of erotic poetry that was printed abroad, lest its publication be prohibited by the British authorities. So yeah, well, it was like dirty, dirty uh, poems. In July of 1898, he left Cambridge not having taken any degree at all, despite a first-class showing in his 1897 exams and consistent second-class honors results before that. White stains, uh, (laughs) that still makes me smile. That's funny. We're going back. He was the the first Lenny Bruce, you know, doing a thing. Um, you know, he had the Golden Dawn. There was that time of his whole deal. Um, you know, we got we got a whole bunch of dealios going over here. I want to jump ahead a little bit, though. I know we're. I don't want to take too long, too crazy of an episode type deal. You know what I mean? Now, you know, his old mentor, George Cecil Jones, Crowley continued performing uh, the Armenian rituals at the Ashdown Park Hotel, Colesden, in Colesden, Surrey. Crowley claimed that in uh, doing so, he attained Samadhi, or union with Godhead. And what's the difference between God and Godhead, Ray? Is that just like, do you know the Do you know? 
No, that's interpreted a lot of different ways among people. You can leave that, that one open. Okay. Uh, making heavy use of hashish during these rituals. There you go. He wrote an, es- an essay on psychology, the psychology of hashish in 1909, in which he championed the drug as an aid to mysticism. He also claimed to have been contacted once again by Iwas in the late October and November of 1907, adding that Iwas dictated two further texts to him. Lieber uh, the seventh. Yeah, the seventh and Liber Cordis Cinci Serpente, both of which were later classified in Corpus, the holy books of Thelma. Crowley wrote down more Thelmic holy books during his last two months of the year, including uh, Liber Liber Enochrum, Liber Porta Lucas, Subficer Ten, Liber Tau, Liber Trigramaton. And Libra, yeah, Ella Vireta, which he again claimed to have received from a premature source. Crowley stated in 1909 when the manuscript for the Book of Law was rediscovered at Bolenskine, he developed the opinion that Thelma represe- represented objective truth. Uh, yeah, he was. Uh, Definitely go in November 1907. Crowley and Jones decided to found an occult order to act as a successor to the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, being aided in doing so by Fuller. The result was uh, the double A there. The group headquarters and temple were situated at 124 Victoria Street in central London, uh, and their rights borrowed much from those in the Golden Dawn. Yeah. It was definitely a crazy time. Now, I want to jump a little bit ahead. I don't want to get too crazy, but we'll jump a little bit ahead till later in life. Uh, you know, let this be a jump off for anybody out there. But we're going to jump a little bit to when he came to the good old U.S. of A. You know what I mean? Where we're a little more familiar with that area, uh, which was from 1914 to 1919. Still lifetimes away. But at least it's on our soil. By 1914, Crowley was living hand-to-mouth existence. Things weren't good for him. Relying largely on donations on his GoFundMe page from AA, members and dues payments made to the OTO. In May, he transferred ownership of Bolingkai House of the MMM for financial reasons. And in July, he went mountaineering in the Swiss Alps. So he's still doing that mountaineering thing pretty heavy. Now, during this time, the First World War broke out after re, uh, recuperating from a bout with phlebitis, which is an uh, inflammatory of vein, usually in the legs. I wonder if that's a sexual disease they caught. Crowley set sail for the United States aboard the RMS Lusitania in October of 1914. Arriving in New York City, he moved into a hotel and began earning money writing for the American edition of Vanity Fair and undertaking freelance work for the famed astrologer um, Evangeline Adams. Evangeline's a great name. You don't see that anymore. In the city, he continued experimenting with sex magic. All right. That sounds like my favorite magic. (laughs) Now, through the use of masturbation female prostitutes, and male clients of Turkish bathhouse. Okay. All of these encounters were documented in his diaries. 
And I believe the whole deal was like, um, like right after orgasm or something like that. So that's when your, your, your vision, your mental vision's the clearest or something like that. I must be extremely clairvoyant now. Yeah. <laughs> Out of control. <laughs> Professing to be of an Irish ancestry and his supporter of Irish independence from Great Britain, Crowley began to uh, espouse support from Germany in their war against Britain. He became involved in New York's pro-German movement, and in January 1915, German spy George Sylvester Verick employed him as a writer for his propagandist paper, The Fatherland, which was dedicated to keeping the U.S. neutral in the conflict. In later years, uh, detractors denounced Crowley as a traitor to Britain for this action. He entered into a relationship with Sean Robert Forrester, um, which I believe is a girl, even though I'm catching the heavy dude vibes from the name, but the picture is a girl with whom he toured the West Coast. In Vancouver, headquarters of the North American OTO, he met with Charles Stansfield Jones and uh, Wilford Talbert Smith to discuss propagation of, the, of uh, Philema on the continent in Detroit, he experimented with peyote, you know what I mean? Uh, in Park David at Park Davis, then visited Seattle, San Francisco, Santa Cruz, Los Angeles, San Diego, Tijuana, and the Grand Canyon. You got to catch the Grand Canyon. It's a landmark for crying out loud. Before returning to good old NYC. There he befriended Ananda Kumarasamy, and his wife, Allison Richardson. Crowley and Richardson performed sex magic in April 1916. I wonder if that's just sex, but they say that they've seen fireworks. I don't know. It says that they can, like, harvest energy to use in your life with whatever they're doing. Very interesting. Oh, oh, I I thought it was their use of balloon animals. Uh, um, Ray, sex magic, is, is is it something like... With after the orgasm, like the clear mind type thing, or is it what Cindy Lou's talking about? With they harvest their energy, is it do they do they not climax? Do you know anything about that stuff? Depends on which group, because even within that, there are different groups. You yeah. have the tent group, and you have different groups. Most of them do not rely on the orgasm, but they do rely on the sexual energy hmm. to raise their energy and to use that. Uh, to increase their energy and their power. Mm. Currently, the best, though it's not completely accurate, if you talk about chaos magic, um, one of the aspects, not all of it, but one of the aspects of chaos magic has to do with sex. Yeah. And gaining energy that way. Um, Quickly, another thing is, like, when you were talking about uh, drinking the blood of cats, Mm. he was very heavy into Egyptian magic, and the cats True. were worshipped in Egypt. So they were very, the cats were considered very powerful. Mm. So you're trying to absorb their energy and their power through their blood. Same as a vampire absorbs life. The other thing is that uh, you mentioned weight in his book of ceremonial magic, or black magic, which I had at one time. What most people don't know is he was kind of an occult generalist, that was just one of his books he put out there, but the most popular for ages, the most popular tarot deck was the weight deck, and it's still sold and used today. Hmm. That's the same person who authored the book. 
or it's an interesting book. Like I said, I had it at one time. It was a, it's a fascinating book. Yeah. Um, you know, fought, fought the, you know, after that sex magic in 1916, she became pregnant, but then she miscarried. Uh, later that year, he took a magical retirement to a cabin by Lake Pasqualini, owned by Evangeline Adams. There he made heavy uh, use of drugs and undertook a ritual after which he proclaimed himself Master Therian. He also wrote several short stories based on uh, J.G. Frazier's The Golden Bow and in uh, uh, a work of literacy criticism, The Gospel According to Bernard Shaw. In December, he moved to New Orleans, his favorite U.S. city, before spending February 1917 with Evangel... Evangel ah, before spending February 1917 with evangelical Christian relatives in Florida. Very weird that he would do that because, I guess, you know, people like the Red Sox and, the, and people like the Yankees and they can still get together sometimes. Returning to New York, he moved in. What's funny is that it was in New York, and they were, they're probably like, you can be a Satanist, but you can't be a Red Sox fan in this house. <laughs> <laughs> he, he moved in with artist uh, and AA member Leon Engers Kennedy in May, learning of his mother's death. After the collapse of the fatherland, Crowley continued his association with Varek, who appointed him contributing editor of the Arch Journal, The International. Crowley used it to promote Salima, but it soon caused publication, ceased publication. He then moved to the studio apartment in Roddy Manor, uh, who became his partner in Scarlet Woman. Um, Scarlet Woman is a goddess found in the occult system of Thelema, okay? Now, through their rituals, which Crowley called Emelangtra workings, he believed that they were contacted by a, pre- a preternatural, preternatural entity named Lamb. The relationship soon ended. Now, Lamb, uh, there's a picture that Crowley drew of Lamb, and he looked very alien-like, with the, that, that dome alien head, big forehead, you know, triangular type face. In 1918, Crowley went on a magical retreat in the wilderness of Esopos Island on the Hudson River. Harry began translating uh, of the Tao Te Ching, painted thelemic slogans on the riverside cliffs, and he later claimed experienced past life memories of being Jesun, Pope Alexander, Alessandro Cagliastro, and Alephis Levy. Back in New York City, he moved to Greenwich Village, where he took, uh, I wonder where, we can probably go to it, where he took Leah Herzig, his lover and next Scarlet Woman. Hmm. Uh, He took up painting as a hobby, exhibiting his work at the Greenwich Village Liberal Club and attracting the attention of the New York Evening World. With the financial assistance of the sympathetic Freemasons, uh, Crowley revived the Equinox with the first issue of Volume 3, known as the Blue Equinox. He spent mid-1990 on a climbing holiday in Montauk before returning to London in December. Is that the Montauk that we know? I think it might be. Yeah, Montauk, New York, or the Montauk Project. Very interesting. 
Um, so very now his later life we'll get into kind of the later life and the depreciator of this guy. Um, you know, he went, you know, Crowley and Herzig went to Tunis where they were uh, dogged by continuing poor health. He unsuccessfully tried again to give up heroin. You know what I mean? Uh, it's a tough thing to shake, they say, and began writing what he termed his autobiography, The Confessions of Alistair Crowley. They were joined in Tunis by uh, Philomit Norman Mund, who became Crowley's public relations consultant, employed a local boy, Mohammed Ben Brahim, as his servant. You know, that's a scary thought. Crowley went with him on a retreat to Nefta, where they performed sex magic together. In January of 1924, Crowley traveled to Nice, France, where he met with Frank Harris, underwent a series of nasal operations. So his nose must have been Artie Lang style from all that cocaine and visited the Institute for the Harmonious Development of Man and had a positive opinion of its founder, George Gurdjieff. Uh, destitute, he took on a wealthy student, Alexander Zuzolar, before taking on another American follower, Dorothy Olson. I, I almost see a dark Coen Brothers comedy when I think of like a cult leader, washed up cult leader, all strung out on heroin, who has no money, but he almost lives couch to couch with his followers, you know what I mean? Um, it's a very weird deal. Crowley took Olsen back to Tunisia for a magical retreat in Nefta. Very magical. Uh, where he also wrote To Man, 1924's To Man. Uh, a declaration of his own status as a prophet entrusted with bringing Thelema to humanity. After spending the winter in Paris in early 1925, Crowley and Olsen returned to Tunis, where he wrote The Heart of the Master as an account of a vision he experienced in a trance. In March, Olsen became pregnant, and Herzig was called to take care of her. She miscarried, following which Crowley took Olsen back to France. Herzig later distanced herself from Crowley, who then denounced her. I don't think you think Crowley was, was someone that would probably want to have a kid, or you think he might have been influential on all these miscarriages? A kid to drink or eat? Well, that's yeah. the thing. You think he would be like he would think the kid was the anti-Christ type deal, or do you think that he would he would be he wouldn't like a kid because it would take attention off of him? He's an egomaniac, you know what I mean? He would he wants people to focus on him, not the kid type deal. And then I guess you could also say that if he's such a supreme higher being, if he had a child and maybe there was something up with it, he might think people might not look at him as this big high king, you know what I mean? Well, I mean, it's it's kind of funny that, you know, you have this guy who's making himself as a big deal and he's couch surfing from one, you know, uh, follower to the next. I mean, you got to have a lot of balls to be like, you gotta follow me. You gotta believe what I believe. But uh, you know what? Uh, can I like have five bucks for like the subway so I can go down, get myself a Big Mac or something? I mean, yeah. you gotta have a lot of balls to you know try to get people to follow you when you got nothing really to offer. Probably, um, he would have been a perfect role for uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman to fucking play. He would have killed this role. Oh, too. Philip Seymour. He's got the heroin ties yeah. and everything. And, you know, the master was phenomenal. <clears throat> but 
I'm, I'm going to uh, pop back into this. According to Crowley, we got a little bit left. According to Crowley, Roos na- had named him head of the OTA, OTO upon his death. But this was challenged by leader of the German OTO, uh, Henrik Tranker. Tranker called the Hohenblum Conference in Dungaria, Germany, which Crowley attended. Their prominent members like Carl German and Martha Kunzel championed Crowley's leadership. But other key figures like Albin Garou, Oscar Hopfer, and Henry Breven backed Tanker uh, by opposing it, resulting in a split in the OTO, moving to Paris where he broke, out, uh, broke with Olsen in 1926. Crowley went through a large number of lovers over the following years um, with whom he experienced and uh, experimented in sex magic. Throughout, he was uh, dogged by poor health, largely caused by his heroin and cocaine addictions. And like I said before, well, those two drugs are, you know, they're going to two different directions, you know what I mean? And I'm sure he didn't do cocaine on Tuesdays and heroin on Wednesdays. And, you know, in 1928, Crowley was introduced to a young Englishman, Israel Rigardi, who embraced Thelema and became Crowley's secretary for the next three years. That year, Crowley also met Gerald York, who became uh, began organizing Crowley's finances, but never became a Thelemite. He also befriended the homosexual journalist Tom Dreberg. Dreberg did not accept Thelema either. It was here that Crowley also published one of the most significant works, Magic in Theory and Practice, which received little attention at the time. In December uh, 1928, Crowley met Nicaraguan Maria Teresa Sanchez. Crowley was deported from France by the authorities who disliked his reputation and feared that he was a German agent so that she could join him in brain. Crowley married Sanchez in August of 29. Now based in London, Mandrake Press agreed to publish his autobiography in a limited edition six-volume set, also publishing his novels Moonchild and the book of short stories, The Stratagem. Mandrake went on into liquidation in November 1930 before the entirety of Crowley's confessions could be published. Mandrake's owner, P.R. Stevenson, meanwhile, wrote The Legend of Alistair Crowley, an analysis of the media coverage surrounding him. Uh, in April 1930, Crowley moved to Berlin, where he took Henry Heger, his magical partner, and the relationship was troubled. In September, he went to Lisbon in Portugal to meet the poet Fernando Pessoa. There, he decided to fake his own death. Uh, doing so uh, with Pessoa's help at the Boca do Inferno rock formation, he then returned to Berlin, where he reappeared three weeks later at the opening of his art exhibit exhibition at the gallery of Newman Nerdendorf. Crowley's paintings fitted with the fashion of German expressionism. A few of the, a few of them sold, but the press reports were largely favorable. In August of 1931, he took Bertha Bush as his new lover. Um, they had a violent relationship and often physically assaulted one another. He continued to have affairs with both men and women while in the city <clears throat> and met with famous people like Audius Huxley and Alfred Adler. After befriending him in January of 1932, he took the communist Gerald Hamilton as a lodger 
through whom he was introduced to many figures in the Berlin far left. It is possible that he was operating as a spy for British intelligence at the time, monitoring the communist movement. Uh, yeah, you know, some crazy stuff. And, uh, you know, Crowley left Bush and returned to London where he took Pearl Brooke Smith as his new Scarlet Woman. Um, Jesus Christ, this guy with his Scarlet Woman. Man, yeah, Scarlet I can't woman. keep up. He must have a bionic dick. Yeah. Seriously. I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, I I can only dream of of being able to. How many like partners have we already talked about? One of, them, <laughs> one of those cult leaders. I remember somebody saying there was research of them having like a mutilated deck or something. From aye, so aye, much, aye, aye. so much activity there. Maybe, like maybe he had, had like a mutation where he has like two dick in one. Or I think something. it was like worn down, like a pencil, like it was finished. I, I, I mean, heck, you know, one dick for the guy, one dick for the girl. He can, you know, do it at the same time. I mean, it's. I've seen that movie once. Yeah. You know, <laughs> now undergoing further nasal surgery, it had to have been cocaine and blew this dude's nose apart. Um, well, Okay, he's 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 snorting cocaine with his dicks. Well, it it eats away all the cartilage in your nose. I think that's probably what happened to him because he was heavy into cocaine. It was here in 1932 that he was invited to be a guest of honor at Foils uh, Literary Luncheon, also being invited by Harry Price to speak at the National Laboratory of Psych uh, Psych Psycho Research. I'm losing my mind. In need of money. He launched a series of court cases against people whom he believed had uh, libeled him, some of which proved successful. Uh, he gained much publicity in the lawsuit. Uh, the court case added to Crowley's financial problems, though, and in February 1935, he was declared bankrupt. Bang. During the hearing, it was revealed that Crowley had been spending three times his income for several years. He developed a friendship with Deidre Patricia Doherty. She offered to bear his child, who was born in May 1937, named Randall Guar. So he does actually have a kid. Crowley nicknamed him Alistair Aturik. She would not let him name him Alistair. Ooh, he died in a car accident in 2002 at the age of 65. Crowley continued to socialize with friends, holding curry, uh, holding curry parties in which he cooked particularly spicy food for them. He was festive. Uh, in 1936, he published his first book in six years, The Equinox of the Gods, which contained a facsimile of the Book of Law and was considered volume three, number three, The Equinox Periodical. The work sold well, resulting in a second print run in 1937. He gave a series of public lectures and yoga in Soho. Crowley now began living largely off contributions supplied by the OTO's Abap Lodge in California, led by rocket scientist John Whiteside, uh, Jack Par- a.k.a. Jack Parsons. Um, Crowley was intrigued by the rise of Nazism in Germany and influenced his friend Martha Kitzenel, believed that Adolf Hitler might convert to Thelema. When Nazis abolished the German OTO and imprisoned German who fled the U.S., Crowley then lambasted Hitler as a black magician. Now, here, now we're about to pop off into the old death. Here we go. When Second World War broke out, Crowley wrote to the Naval Intelligence Division offering his services, but they declined. 
He associated with a variety of figures in Britain's intelligence community at the time, including Dennis Wheatley, Roald Dahl, my boy, Ian Fleming, there you go, and Maxwell Knight, and claimed to have been behind the V for Victory sign, first used by the BBC, the Boombastic cast. This has never been proven. In 1940, his asthma worsened and his German-produced medication unavailable. He returned to using heroin. So he finally did get off heroin, apparently. Sucks that you got to go back to it because you get bad health care. Once again, becoming <laughs> is like, is, that's just like current time. Uh, again, becoming addicted. Usually, I think you would become if you're going to go dabble back into the heroin. As the Blitz hit London, Crowley relocated to Torgway, where he briefly hospitalized with asthma and entertained himself with visits to the local chess club. Tiring on Torquay, he returned to London, where he was visited by American Thelemite Grady McNerdy, to whom Crowley awarded the title of Hymenius Alpha. He stipulated that through German, uh, though Germer would would be his immediate successor. McMurdy uh, should succeed German as the head of OTO after the latter's death. With OTO's initiate, Lady Freda Crowley developed plans to produce a tarot card set. Sounds like a limited edition type vibe. Designed by him and painted by Harris. It is. It's like uh, it's a GoFundMe perk from back in the day. Accompanying (laughs) this was a book published in the limited edition, The Book of Thoth by Chiswick Press in 1944 to aid in the war effort. He wrote a proclamation of the rights of humanity, Liber Os, and a poem for the liberation of France and La Grasse. Crowley's final publication during his lifetime was a book of poetry called Ola, an anthology of 60 years of song. Another of his projects, Alistair uh, Explains Everything, was post, uh, posthumously published as Magic Without Tears. Very dramatic sounding. In April 1944, Crowley briefly moved to Easton Clinton in Berkenshmere, where he was visited by the poet Nancy Cunard before relocating to Hashtags in Sussex. I wonder if when she says uh, where he's visited, if that... If, if, you know, it was romantically, but they just don't want to throw shade on them because they were sex slaves like everybody else. So they say and they visited, you know what I mean? Now, before relocating the hashtags in Sussex, where he took up residence at the Netherword boarding house, he took a young man named Kenneth Grant as his secretary, paying him in magical teachings rather than wages. What's better <laughs> than money? You know what I mean? Hey, hey, look. Look, I, I got this handkerchief, and he keeps on going, and going, and going, and go. whoa, okay. I'm a magician now. He just wanted to be the next, yeah. He was also. Hey, hey, want to see what I do with these balloon animals? Oh. Ooh, I can make a giraffe. How about the steak? Now you don't need money for food. I showed you how to make balloon animals instead. You should be a colleague. Now, he was also introduced to John Simmons, who he appointed to be his literary executor. Simmons thought that thought little of Crowley, later publishing negative biographies of him, chorus, there you go, corresponding with illusionist Arnold Crowther. It was through him that Crowley was introduced to Gerard Gardner, Gardiner, and the future founder of Gardneria Wicca. 
Um, they became friends with Crowley, authorizing Garner to revive Britain's ailing OTO. Another visitor was Eliza Marion Butler, who interviewed Crowley for a book, The Myth of Magus. Other friends and family also spent time with him, among them Doherty and Crowley's son, Alistair Atterick. On December 1st, 1947, Crowley died at Netherwood of chronic bronchitis aggravated by uh, pleurisy uh, and myocardial degeneration at age 72. Pleurisy is also known as pleuritis, is inflammation of the membranes that surround the lungs and the chest cavity. This can result in a sharp chest pain while breathing. Occasionally, the pain may be a constant and dull ache. Interesting. Sounds like heart attack stuff. (laughs) His funeral was held at a Brighton crematorium on December 5th. About a dozen people attended. Must have been COVID times, you know what I mean? (laughs) And Lewis Wilkinson read experts from the Gnostic Mass, the Book of the Law, and the Hymn to Pan. The funeral generated press controversy and was labeled a black mass by the tabloids. Crowley's body was cremated. His ashes were sent to Carl Germer in the U.S., who buried them in his garden in Hampton, New Jersey. (laughs) So that's where he is. You know what I mean? Um, Yeah, quite. Yeah. Somehow, I think. The fact that he's buried in Hampton, New Jersey, kind of is is is, is fitting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. It's uh, Tony Soprano's backyard. He's doing it big. That's what Tony had in the shed. In the shed he had back there was his ashes. <laughs> ashes. I, I do find I find it funny with all the people he's had sex with throughout the years. He only mustered up twelve people at his funeral. I mean, heck. And even though it only really talked about like a one kid that you know, I I'm I'm surprised that he didn't have a whole slew of illegitimate children he didn't know about suddenly showing up trying to collect awesome. an inheritance. I think he was. I think people were. I think that it was probably like a play. Like people that probably had sex with him were probably people that at the time were caught up in it, and they were like, it's kind of the thing to do. Maybe they believed it. Maybe they half-ass believed it. But they were like, "Well, I got a story out of it." So I think it's more of that deal. And if they were to get pregnant, I feel like that. I think after, a couple of weeks after hanging with uh, hanging with him, you probably get, it's like you'd probably be embarrassed to be linked to him like that forever type vibe. You wouldn't want to. You probably wouldn't tell people you used to hang out with Alistair. You know what I mean? It'd be one of those. Honestly, your, your father. Uh, he 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 was a great guy. He was a magician. He did this trick where he totally disappeared. Hey, hey! So when as we approach, but, but hey, we at least had magical sex. So you know that's 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 a plus. You can say when he wasn't having sex with me, he was having sex with boys, and then found yes. animals and everything else that he he felt like he wanted to do. Well, well, I mean, when you have two dicks, you kind of have to. I mean, I mean, you know, the whole. In the eyes of like the Christian world, that you know, going into, and I don't think I talked about him with animals in, in this tonight, but I think I have heard that he kind of matched up with stuff like that, with some bestiality type stuff. And if your mom's calling you a beast, 
then bestiality is only a couple letters away. You know what I mean? Because he only said that once he found him with his pet goat. What do you guys think overall about Alistair? Like when he died, what do you where? And this is for everybody because it's a lot of personal opinions of afterlife stuff. But um, we'll start with Cynthia, and then we'll go to Hawk, and then we'll end with Ray. Um, what do you, what do you think happened with Alistair Crowley when he died? Like after? Yeah, like, like when, he, yeah, like when he when he went to the uh, the next place. What do you think? What do you think? Well, I mean, he certainly lived his life um, on his own terms, you know, and um, and but I do believe that a life of just straight sin can't do anybody any good. Um, and, you know, it says that he does haunt that location. I'm interested in checking out the New Jersey cemetery that he's in to see if he has anything to say um, or if he's around there. But I would imagine he's just um, living his the best hell he can. He's just doing the best he can, you know what I mean? Crowley. Um, Alexander, what, 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 what's AC doing right about now? <laughs> well, I, I mean, if, if in the afterlife you can peer down on the world and uh, poke your head into what's going on, I would not be surprised that he's listening to us right now, that he's, he's, he's peering into uh, from hell. And, uh, and, and and listening to what we're t- saying about him. Because the kind of person that I get the vibe from reading about him is that if anyone, like, mentioned his name, that he just, whether it's good or bad, he is such an egomaniac that he'd want to just, you know, just revel in listening to people just talking about him. The fact that... People are still talking about him to this day. Probably, I mean, if if there's a way uh, for him to hear what's going on now, he'd probably be tickled pink. He'd probably be extremely the uh, happiest guy in hell right now. Like, oh my god! I mean, heck, it's 2022 and people are still talking about me. I made an impact, whether it's good or bad, mainly bad. But he made an impact that people actually still. You know, even know his name. So I picture Crowley in hell right now. The way you just acted with with complete hell and torture and chaos. I'm going, OMG! They're talking about me. OMG! Mostly ghostly. Oh my god! Oh my god! Matthew Fisher. I actually mentioned my name. Oh Up my the world. As you're saying it, the lights behind me are dimming, and I'm trying to ignore it. See. <laughs> Alex should be your up. Your, your Thanks, Alex. Up. <laughs> <laughs> He's taking me away. <laughs> it would have been Alex funny if you fell through the floor. Alex, Alex, that would have been the greatest Alex thing. Alex Crowley. I'm going to need Ray to do a home house call. <laughs> I know. I was going to have Ray do a little blessing after talking about something this week. Right. I'm, I'm sorry. Alex Crowley showed up. He got a little frisky. He showed me his two dicks. I got too so, excited. So, Hawkman, you think he yeah. sits on a throne in hell, or do you think that oh, he... Oh, hell no. Hell no. I think that he's just in hell like any other uh, asshole being, nice. you know, whether <laughs> uh, tortured or 
a thing like that. I mean, it, it's the thing is, it's there's only one throne in hell, and the devil's on that. And You're if he no. has subordinates, I mean, I'm sure that he treats them as badly as he treats, you know, anyone else in there. I'm sure that Aleister Crowley and and Adolf Hitler are getting like a nice fried uh, pineapple shoved up their asses right about now. Maybe, maybe Crowley would like that. Too. <laughs> Hey, that's true, that's true. He might actually... See, the thing is, sometimes you think what, what would be the most horrendous thing and someone might actually enjoy it. Now, Aleister Crowley, I wouldn't be surprised if there's a lot of stuff that the devil's like, you know, every time I keep on trying to think of something to torture this guy with, he just gets a heart on. I don't know what to do. I mean, the guy gets so excited as soon as I show up. I mean, honestly, it's like white stains everywhere. Everywhere. I I get the cleaning lady. She can't do anything about it. This guy just is so excited as soon as I show up. Okay. I I feel like I'm Mick Jagger. Moves like Jagger. He's got them moves like Jagger. Ray, what do you think about... where, Where do you think Krause ended up? What do you think his afterlife was? I don't know if he got an afterlife. Um, I tend to think his hell would be reincarnated as a Southern Baptist. Whereas <laughs> he ha- his what he has to do is get up on that altar and sing praises as loud as he can. That that would be it. Crowley himself, um, yeah, he was. I'd say maniac, egotistical. He also stole a lot of things and modified them. Yeah. I mean, he stu- he studied all these different beliefs, including Hindi and stuff, and none of what he says matches up. So he became what he hated about other religions or churches. Yeah, he uh, investigated that stuff. Um, and by the way, if anybody can get their hands on the Golden Bow, it's an excellent read. Hmm. It's a very good read. I used to have a copy of it. Um, and even like, I'm surprised he was involved with the I Ching because if you take a look at the I Ching, one of the things in there that it does say, which is a book of prophecy, is that when heaven and earth are opposed, there will be destruction. So the I Chi has a whole different view, but he would take, oh, I'm going to take this from this, this from that. I'm going to weave this tale. I'm going to make it into something and I'm going to try and sell it and I'm going to use people and I'm going to get them to to worship me. Yeah. And he he bounced from so many different things, taking only what he thought he could use and twisting it around from its original meaning. Um, yeah, he became, like I said, what he hated uh, about preachers or about churches. Mm. And I think that uh, if there is a hell, uh, he's certainly there, and I think the worst thing for him would be the person who gets stuck mopping the floors or cleaning the toilets and not being the center of attention. I agree. Yeah, clean up those white stains he leaves behind. It's just, uh, it's so hot in hell that it's just like fried eggs everywhere on the ground. That's how hot it is if you're talking about white stains. That was an orgasm joke. For mostly ghostly ladies and gentlemen. So, um, yeah, my take, like, when I think of Crowley, I think of Crowley as, like, almost like like a famous televangelist, but flipped. Like, we said, the Kenneth Copeland 
comparison. Yeah. I think the same way that I don't think Kenneth Copeland is more favored than God or the positive light or that, that he's more important than anybody else. I don't think he is the same way. I don't think that he's more favored by the Deval or the negative energy than anybody else would be. I think, uh, I think there's some theatrics definitely involved in this. I think it comes from a, a little boy that's uh, very sad that his father didn't get a full, full run with him. Um, probably a little upset that he was stuck with the one parent that he didn't like that much. Um, always having religion pushed in your face is tough. I think in certain situations, because they think, don't worry that, you know, God will take care of it. Don't worry about it. Even well, today's awful, but don't worry tomorrow will be better. And that's kind of, unless you have faith to be, to hear that it's a lot, you know what I mean? So for a kid, to kind of just be, oh, yeah, we, you don't feel good or whatever. Like, you know, just have faith. I think that stuff like that can get to someone who doesn't believe or is juggling back and forth with it. I think that that the faith thing and the belief thing for the, for something with so many unanswered questions, um, I think it's tough for a kid going through trauma like that, losing, losing his dad dukes over there. Um, to go through, I think that's. So I think that was heavy on it. He just kind of had a hatred, angry, very angry guy, and uh, I think that he realized that if he went, so it went dark. I think the same energy that when people when he would be crazy and people would look at him like, "Oh shit, that dude's evil." I think he'd get a little something from that. I think that would give him, um, you know, almost like a, like when a comedian maybe gets a good laugh or something like that, maybe. Maybe, you know, people are built differently. So for you to say, for one of us to say, hey, for someone to look at us and be like, put the cross up to him and be like, that dude's evil, stay away. Like, I don't, we, I don't think anybody here would want that. But I'm pretty positive there's people in this world that would like that, maybe feed off of that energy. So, like, that's my kind of take on him. Do I think he's in a hell? I mean, like Ray was saying, if there is a hell type vibe um who's to say what hell is you know what i mean is it something you do forever or something you're there for a little bit um you know there's also the forgiveness aspect i know in a couple of weeks we're going to have a gentleman on the show uh, talking about uh, who corresponded with a lot of serial killers throughout the years and he wrote a book about like can they be forgiven can they wind up in heaven and it's kind of a weird discussion of course but it's like if you were to believe in the forgiveness thing, then yeah, if they were to honestly ask for forgiveness and be feel bad for what they did, then yeah, I guess they could be let in. Um, you know, with, with Crowley, I think he went, he went all the way to the end, believing it and staying with it where LeVay, I think he had a deathbed regrets, I think of being being the way that he was so to go back i think this dude was a little more hardcore or that the other dude was just so soft that he came off more hardcore for the cause type vibe um but definitely like a, a dude that it's weird like if you were to say you know the the selfish thing i can understand the selfish thing but then like drinking the blood and all that and you know the, like the cat's blood like where did the nine lives thing come with cats you know what I mean? And I assume that's why they worship them because suppose, you know, they have life. Um, 
you know, and that's probably why that dude was drinking blood, thinking that he would be able to live longer, or have get a multiple lives. So I wonder kind of where the whole that nine that cat has a nine live theory came from. But well, yeah, well, it, I but, mean, yeah, go ahead, Greg. Well, the nine lives touches in with an older medieval thing about witchcraft and cats being familiars. Okay. And they believe that the uh, witch would in, take over or inhabit the cat. For, first, they were at times they were familiars, uh, which is basically something that served them and helped them in their magic. But the witch could go into the cat and uh, escape into it there. But there was a limit to how many times she could do it. Mm. And that came up with uh, well, she could only do it nine times, which means the cat could only live nine times. So the cat got the nine lives from which from basically uh, the witchcraft of the Middle Ages, is that's where that legend came from. Yes. Yeah, he comes off like, and he uh, he just personality-wise, like after meeting so many different types of personalities in life, he does feel like one of those people that, you know, they they get real, like they go through some trauma and instead of like trying to look at the brighter side of things and be a positive deal, they kind of go all towards the dark side, you know what I mean? And that's kind of like what I take from him because, you know, he was very arrogant and you know, he treated people like shit, too, supposedly. He was, like, fucking emotionally brutal to people and all types of stuff. Um, you know, like a, a, a narcissist-type vibe, you know what I mean, to the umph degree. I think he's just kind of a weirdo fucking dude that, you know, he was kind of, uh, you know, coming up in wealth, you know, you get whatever you want for a while. Then you that real-life dose of real life when when, when, when the, the father died, and left them with the mother and like, you know, I think that's exactly that, right? That, that's it, dude. That's, that's the turning point where he became what he became, became this beast that, uh, you know, when you got your mother telling you you're a fucking beast from your youth, you kind of start to believe it, you know what I mean? And then it's, I think it falls back on that. Um, when we were talking about the parent thing before, I think it falls back on the, um, you can th- throw in blame back on it. Like if he says, you know, I can't really be blamed because my mother told me I was a beast my whole, what do you expect? So I think there's like a lot of that elements in it too. But yeah, you know, this is, these are just regular people, you know what I mean? Like everybody here, um, you know, a poet and he didn't know it, started to show it, you know what I mean? Hawk's doing a big over there. Um, Alexander, thanks for being a guest on the Mostly Ghostly Show this week. No problem. I love to be here. Oh, fantastic. You know, Cynthia Whitney, you are like, what's the way? What's the beyond family and the mostly ghostly realm? We're all spirits intertwined in a ghostly orb. You know what I mean? Oh, yes. I'm going to leave you with the words from the great Aleister Crowley. Oh. Stab your demonic smile to my brain. Soak me in cognac, love, and of course, cocaine. I like that. I love this guy. <laughs> I, go, I want that on my tombstone. Now this, that I mean, honestly, I think that if Alistair Crowley ever met Charlie Sheen, that would be like the epitome of 
a wild ass party. Maybe he's the reincarnation of Charlie. <laughs> you haven't put that together. Maybe he could be his dad. It could be great great granddaddy or something. You know. So if y'all like this, you know, go check out more episodes of the Mostly Ghostly. This was kind of a nice Mostly Ghostly Behold the Pill podcast mashup episode, which we like to do from time to time. Both shows are part of the Boombastic Media Network. Um, there's a handful of other shows on there. Definitely check out. Uh, our guest, Alex Hawk, do you have anything coming up? You want to, What do you want to promote before you leave real quick? Um, Nothing uh, big. Um. Uh, at this moment, uh, I got a few uh, projects that are hopefully coming out soon. I don't know any exact dates. Uh, there is Bridge of the Doomed uh, from, and Bloodthirst from the Mahal Empire that I'm in. That's supposed to yeah. be released this year. And also uh, Adrenaline, an action film uh, with uh, directed by Max Cerci. That's supposed to also... We drop sometime this year. But unfortunately, I do not have any exact dates at this time. Do you, uh, are you a part of any podcasts or anything like that? Any, any, any podcasts around this network or anything like that? You well, yes, I am. I'm There's part of uh, the Boombasticast, which I a co-host with the one and only Mr. Matthew Fisher. Also, um, as, as said before, I uh, also part of the Behold the Pale podcast. Again, with Matt. And also, the Dead Kids of Derry. So I do three. Three of them. So. You're a, a renaissance man. You really are like Alistair Crowley, man. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know. Dude, dude, I would love to be able to have as much sex as he does. But I honestly don't think that my, my heart could take all of that action. Plus the cocaine. I mean, honestly, at my weight, I'd be dead within like two seconds. He's last. He's lucky he lasted as long as he did. You know what I mean? But uh, you know, check out more episodes of Mostly Ghostly, and uh, we'll catch you all on the next episode of what show? The Mostly Ghostly Show. Ghostly.